Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. Today, we sat down with the co-founder of Tesseract, Major Garrett Hernandez. In today's episode, we talk culture. The objective of today's podcast is for you to compare and contrast Air Force and Amazon culture. Also, we're going to walk through the importance of a culture playbook and how it can apply to your team. All right, here we go. Um, culture. Culture. What does it mean to you? Oh, no. Oh, no, I thought I was going to get more of a softball. Oh. That one's actually a really hard one. <laughs> uh no, we'll 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 start. No, yeah, no, it's good. So no, let's start with uh, let's start with your background. Okay. So where have you been, and what trials and tribulations have you gone through <laughs> in your Air Force career? Yeah, you. Uh, so let's let's plug for Jocko real quick. I'm definitely drinking some Afterburner Orange Jocko Discipline Go, and my brain is going about a thousand miles a minute right now. Good, Which is good. So let's spit some of this out. Uh, so I'm a career Air Force logistics officer. I uh, started, let's say, I'll, I'll list the bases, and then I'll talk a little about maybe some of the more formative experiences, but I started at Davis Monthan Air Force Base, uh, did a deployment in between, uh, ended up going to Travis Air Force Base after that, another deployment, and then uh, ended up at Air Force Personnel Center doing a, I would call a broadening assignment in, in HR, uh, which is a term I learned at Amazon later, which was my follow-on assignment at EWI, EWI Amazon, before coming to the air staff. So that's, you know, let's say 10 or 10 to 11 years across those three bases for assignments or so. And um, to be more specific, each of my deployments were to Afghanistan and working with the Afghan army. So very much so outside of the normal Air Force construct. I think in a lot of ways, I, I'm, I am an Air Force logistics officer, but I've got probably equal amounts of experience and, and growth and let's say identity in, in uh, other services right with a joint team soldiers sailors marines um contractors i'd say um i don't know i i definitely fast forward a lot from my experiences as a lieutenant and even as a captain uh i think in a lot of ways the last three to four years have really come to to let's say be defining for what i would say is my career so far and that was leading up to my tour to go to amazon as an ewe and ewe is the education with industry program um, it was, uh, for me, it was a time where I was coming on 10 years in the service. And I think that's kind of a good mark for a lot of, a lot of airmen where it's like, do I s try to stay for 20? Do I maybe, you know, take my experiences, my resume and, and try to start over somewhere else, uh, you know, to share. I, I think that there weren't a lot of companies that I would leave the air force for, but one of them would, would have definitely been Amazon. And, and in this slide, it was really uh, kind of a happy accident that the Air Force would offer me the chance to stay in the Air Force by giving me a, a shot to go and learn um, in person for about a year at Amazon in, uh, in Seattle. What were you tasked by General George to do going in to your assignment uh, with EWE at Amazon? Yeah, that's great. Great question. And, and that does bring it back. So let's talk culture. Uh, the, uh, the marching orders. Um, by the time I, I sort of got to Amazon, I had a couple of different engagements with General George. 
who is now at Amazon in, after his retirement, which is great. But, uh, you know, I, I still remember this very, very cool conversations. Um, the, the one that I often tell the story of is at the Air Force Association, AFA. Our job was to sort of track him down. I finally got a hold of him at the buffet line. And I said, hey, General George, you don't know me, but you, know, you set out a goal to send an airman to a company like Amazon. And, and I'm the lucky sort of guy that, that gets to go. And, you know, you sort of see a spark in General George's eye. He's like, oh, Garrett, no, I've heard your name. It's great. I'm so glad you found me. Let's talk. And he just keeps serving his food, and we're walking down the line. And, and um, let's say about in about 15 minutes, he was able to, to sort of show me his vision for where the Air Force needed to go, how we, we as a, an enterprise needed to transform and, and sort of get out of a lot of the way, not all the ways, but a lot of the ways that we currently do business into new and more modern ways. And he gave me my role in that. And, and my role was not to stay in the Air Force, but was to go and, and see how a different entity does it. Uh, and in this case, uh, let's call him a digitally literate entity. Uh, you know, that in a lot of ways, Amazon's a software company that does logistics. They're not a logistics company that dabbles in software. It's very much the reverse. Um, so he said, Garrett, I'm super jealous of you. I would trade rank with you right now and I would take your shoes and go to Amazon because you're going to be blown away. You're going to love the software. You're going to learn about the cloud. You're going to learn about their supply chain and their robots. And, and, and I'm super jealous because you're just going to have so much fun. He goes, but, but we're bringing you back and we're going to build the flight line of the future. And if you come back and tell me and tell us in the Air Force that we need all those things that I just listed to you, you will be missing the point because we already know we need them. Uh, what, what I need you to do and what I need the other EWEs who are going to companies like Delta Airlines, United Airlines, FedEx, UPS, since then companies like Tesla, um, what we need you to do is sort of peer deep down into the, that company culture and figure out what it is they do and what it is they set up for in, in terms of a, like a cultural framework for how their employees can take uh, and transform itself. And, and that's a, I mean, it, I don't think I quite appreciated it uh, in the moment, what it would end up meaning for me, you know, now two, three years separate from that. But um, I, I hear senior leaders from colonels and up talk all the time, you know, culture, culture, culture. And, and I rarely hear very specific charges or sort of go-dos for how we're going to change our culture. And in this case, it was sort of teed up for me. Hey, you have a mission. Take off your, take off your uniform, put on a t-shirt and some jeans, blend in, figure it out. And then package it up and bring it back because we're going to do something with it. And it was, a, it was an extremely empowering moment to think that the Air Force would trust me, uh, me and, and some others, with, with this element of you know, this larger transformation effort. So you know, if you could sort of boil culture down into you know, the lens that individuals view the world they're in, you know, the, the way that they hear uh, the words and the language and the way that they can sort of repeat that out. You know, what you see, thoughts you think, the words you say, the actions you take, uh, beliefs and behaviors, you know, how do you bottle that up? And, and how was I going to capture Amazon's beliefs and behaviors or Amazonian belief and behaviors and translate it back into airmen? Uh, that, that was not easy. It was a whole lot of fun, very challenging. Uh, the, the EWE program sets it up that you write quarterly reports, sort of just what you see. And, and I think those were very helpful exercises and challenges. And oh my goodness, I... So the Air Force has been paying me to sort of be here at, at summer camp. Uh, now I have to pay them back. And, uh, and General George was a great executive sponsor in that every report that was sent, 
he would reply back. You could tell he read it. And you could tell that he was sort of guiding and vectoring of, hey, that's great. Keep doing that. Or, hey, you know, maybe I'm not going to pay too much attention to that. But this is definitely more the, the route that you need to be going. And by the end of it, uh, the, the, the final report is usually, uh, it's called the Insight to Industry, I2I. And in a lot of ways, you know, the EWE program's huge. Send dozens and dozens of airmen, officer, enlisted, and civilian to, you know, 65 in my year. I think it's now it's above 70 or maybe even 80 companies. But all these reports come back every year, and, and they're very motivated airmen saying, Air Force, take a look at this. You should, we should be doing this. And I don't know in a lot of cases where they always catch on. So, you know, on the, let's say on the negative or the cynical side of the EWE program is the enjoy your year away from the Air Force, you know, take a knee, write a report, but it's probably going to go in a desk drawer or it'll probably be, you know, maybe looked at, but never read. Definitely, maybe, definitely not acted on, maybe acted on. Uh, and, and I think that's been my experience that it's completely outside of that. And I, I would definitely credit General George with setting it up that, he sent us out, and he built an audience for us to bring back to the Air Force. Uh, so I don't know. Help me clarify parts of that that, that maybe you'd like to t hear about more or touch on more. A couple of pieces that you mentioned that uh, triggered some thoughts. Um, you mentioned Amazon being a software company that does logistics, and that, and that brought me to a logistics company that needed to go software and that being Netflix yeah. uh, and going through that, um, that transformation. I think something also, and, and we'll, we'll dig into this resource here in a second. Uh, no rules, rules, um, outstanding book. You also mentioned, um, Oh man, I lost the thought. Oh, and senior leaders. Um, I know specifically general Brown had have mentioned in speeches about companies that don't change, they don't innovate, and how they how they die. Mm -hmm. uh, I think specifically in one of the the last speeches that he gave, he talked about Kodak. I want to say, mm -hmm. and how how Kodak failed to adapt, and um, you know, even when they saw you know change right right in their face, um, and talking about Netflix, uh, Netflix and Blockbuster, right? Yeah. Um, there's a really great quote about the importance of culture uh, in No Rules Rules and, and how it applies to, you know, evolving and staying relevant. As Jocko would say, back to the book. <laughs> <laughs> it was not obvious at the time, even to me, but we had one thing that Blockbuster did not. A culture that valued people over processes, emphasized innovation over efficiency, and had very few controls. Our culture, which focused on achieving top performance with talent density, and leading employees with context not control has allowed us to continually grow and change as the world and our members' needs have likewise morphed around us. Netflix is different. We have a culture where no rules rules. Yeah, I, you know, so I, I haven't spent any time in Netflix, but uh, that, that whole notion that there are sort of as few rules as possible and you, know, you hire really smart people and you let them go. You let them go and do what they're going to do. So it's sort of a, a an, uh, an organizational trust in the individual. Uh, I, I think I can relate to that in what I saw and experienced at Amazon. Uh, you know, you, you also mentioned General Brown and his observation that, that companies that can't adapt, uh, you know, sort of fall by the wayside. 
Kodak, you know, we, we talked, you could list almost all of them. In fact, at my EWE mid tour, me and a buddy were just sitting in between briefs and we were listing all the different companies that have been disrupted or the industries that have been disrupted, usually by a software driven or, you know, an engineering focused driven startup. Um, you know, for, for Netflix, they disrupted something like Blockbuster. Uh, Amazon has disrupted the borders and the Barnes and Nobles and the Walmarts of the world. Um, the the book that I was reading at Amazon that I think does a really good job at describing this and, and breaking it down how and why it happens is uh, Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma. And, and, and it's definitely something that speaks to, you know, the, the companies, the Kodaks, the blockbusters of the world, the leaders who are there are highly successful. Right? You don't get to be a brand name by sort of being not good at what you do. But the assumption that they're asleep at the wheel and that's why they get disrupted, I, I think Christensen's book and Innovator's Dilemma really uh, sort of throws that out. And, and, and it's a great view and because they're not asleep at the wheel. They're just sort of milking out every last ounce of value in the existing business model. And it's 100% rational to oppose a, an upstart model. In fact, you've built this great big grand machine that you don't want to be inefficient and wasting its time on the margins because you sort of set your, you know, your, your eye on a really big segment, big market segment, you know, whether it's customers or, uh, you know, a product. Um, so, you know, the, there's those jokes, right? That Blockbuster could have just bought Netflix. And I think they had multiple attempts at it, right? Why didn't Borders or Barnes & Noble buy Amazon back when Amazon was, you know, for the most part, a digital bookstore? Um, those executives were busy chasing larger, larger, grander targets. So this whole notion of skating to where the puck is going to be and not where it's at, hugely important. And, and I think General Brown and a lot of our Air Force senior leaders get it. I mean, I, I, you know, I joined the Air Force when I was 17. That was, what, 2004. Um, at that time, the Air Force and the whole DOD's, you know, sort of rising into, into large-scale conflict, Iraq and Afghanistan, right, OEF, OIF, uh, families, Families are separated because service members are gone for six, nine, 12, 15 months at a time. Um, when you're fighting a big war, it's tough to do some of this innovation stuff on the side. You're sort of innovating to knock down the big target, but you know where, where the puck was going while that is happening, and we've seen this sort of play out, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of uh, insurgency, counterinsurgency ops doesn't necessarily prepare you for a high-end you know, digital fight. And, and I think that's where we're at now, which is having to transition and prepare. I, I don't know that we could have done anything different between now and then, but what we have now is an opportunity. However resource constrained we might feel we are, however time crunch we might feel we are, we, we do have an opportunity to make some probably difficult but worthy investments in, in future, right? in future capability. And I think that's what companies like Amazon and Netflix as young upstarts really got, right? They weren't beholden to this huge business model of, of of what they had in, in decades of experience and they could carve out a new niche where no one really is. And I think that's why they could scale so quickly, right? Like, you know, it's, it's a blitz type of scaling growth. Um, so what at the, at the, at the center of that kind of culture, you know, you mentioned Netflix thing is no rules rules at Amazon. There's a lot of employees who would talk about Amazon is not one company. It's actually a company of a thousand startups or a company of a thousand small companies and the way they sort of set up their structure is that each of those companies can be a single separable thread with as much independence as it needs uh, while still being close enough to sort of the mothership 
that it can take advantage of the brand name and the resources and the free cash flow to make some really targeted big bets. Um, and, and that's what Amazon does. They, uh, the, at the basis of their culture is being customer obsessed and not profit driven, not competitor obsessed, not uh, technology obsessed. There's a lot of low tech solutions that I think a lot of uh, Silicon Valley companies approach and that engineering really comes in at that high margin. So the, uh, the cool stuff at Amazon is you see that, and it's no different than at Netflix. Um, you know, the, the whole notion that Amazon is a software company that went into logistics goes back to how it was founded, right? So, you know, Jeff Bezos is a, I think he's a hedge fund analyst or VP and he hears about the internet and he thinks, man, like that being able to tap into, um, a distributed computing network is going to allow it allow for all kinds of things that weren't previously possible. And he makes these sort of, you know, he's a very intelligent guy, but he makes these sort of lists of what business models would work well with something like the World Wide Web. And he hones in on books because, you know, you, you go to a Barnes and Noble or a Borders or, a, you know, a Tower Records, and it's all about shelf space. How many, even a blockbuster, how many movies, CDs, or books can you put on, on the shelf? And if you put enough of the good ones, customers will buy them and pay you for them and then, you know, leave the store. And I think Bezos cues in of, man, like, most bookstores can only have X amount of, you know, fair amount of inventory. What if the shopping experience wasn't to walk by a shelf, but it was to click through a screen search bar instead of having to walk shelf to shelf? And and he's like, this could be pretty good business, right? So they're, they're, in, they're in that business of, I'll sell you a book for a dollar cheaper than you can get it in person. The trade-off in value is you're going to have to wait because we're going to have to ship it to you. And, uh, and I think there were enough customers at the time that were like, yeah, I'll make that trade-off. I don't need this book right now. Right? They're, not, they're not like I was, which was a procrastinating college student who needed the book by tomorrow for the first period <laughs> or for the first test. Uh, in a lot of ways, people read for pleasure. People read for fun. People gift books. And, uh, and that business model took off. And then you see that books were great. And they're a great first foray. World's largest bookstore. Right? This is a 20-plus-year-old narrative. Uh, but branching into things like CDs, DVDs. There's a lot of great use cases that sort of leverage the internet. It was never his intent, though, to just be a bookstore. That's I think right. I think that's important to mention when, right. we're, yeah. when we're talking about those long-term targets. Like, hey, are are we leading this target, or are we taking are we taking care of the five-meter target right that's now? That's right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's still embedded in the Amazonian culture as to yeah, we're taking care of our competitors now. Like yeah. we we are maintaining the edge. But in a deep, dark room, we're taking care of way bigger problems uh, and uh, discovering and innovating and adapting to, to new solutions that our competitors aren't even thinking of or they're not even capable of. That's right. Um, there's a lot that's going on um, within that operation. Um, and, and it all started, you know, hey, like, I'm a bookstore. Mm-hmm. However, no one knows. Yeah. Well, no one knows, you know, 50 years from now, this bookstore is going to be on Mars. Like, (laughs) you know, like uh, Amazon, you know, well, Jeff Bezos uh, has his eyes set on, you know, targets that are literally millions of miles away. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think you're, you know, referring to Blue Origins, which is, it's Jeff Bezos' space company, and they're a competitor to, to other, you know, like the Elon Musk SpaceX of the world, and they, they collaborate with NASA and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you're right. I, I think in a, in a Bezos persona, 
it was never about selling books. I, I think it was a the first thing that I can sell easily on the internet that can give me the ability to go and do other things is books and no one else is doing it. That's the other really important piece. No one else is doing this. If I get out fast enough, early enough, uh, I've, I've carved a, a niche for myself. Um, and, and then it's easy because you can take that same model, the same business model and just rinse and repeat of books, CDs, clothes, shoes, and, and all along the way, right, there's that, those various stages of the hype cycle where there's people who love it and then there's people who hate it. And then there's early adopters, late adopters, so on and so forth. But uh, they've definitely done that transformation piece. And I think this is why General George sent me and, and others to, to an Amazon. And it's not just the Air Force and it's not just logistics. Uh, Air Force PA, Air Force Weather, Air Force Intelligence, all sending EWEs to Amazon. On, on the Navy side, they're sending aviators. Um, I, they sent Marine, Marine Logisticians. The Army has sent uh, acquisitions and engineers. <laughs> There's a lot that the DoD can learn from Amazon right now, and sort of everyone is doing their best. And to Amazon's credit, uh, and, and this again goes to the top because not all not all the Silicon company uh, Silicon Valley companies are sort of sympathetic to DoD concerns. But you know, I think Bezos came on record 2018, 2019, and and sort of set the record straight of we at Amazon will support and partner with and collaborate with. Uh, you know, American defense, because they're what have created a space for us to grow, right? Like, it's it's a very sort of simple thing in his mind. Uh, I think there's a lot of employees who who don't necessarily agree with that. Um, but the value is I got to go there. A lot of others like me got to go there. We got to see that. You, you look at Amazon, they started with books. These days, right, they're the face of public, like, retail cloud. Cloud computing, something for them they invented for themselves uh, to help their e-commerce platform grow. And as it turns out, they look around and like, man, we're really good at this distributed computing thing. Uh, why would we pay anybody else when we're good enough to do this for ourselves? And, and as we think about it, maybe others would want to pay us for our excess capacity. Super brilliant business move. And, and these days, it's their most profitable business line, right? It, it's kind of those, I, don't, I would never call it a happy accident, but it definitely wasn't by design that they would build themselves an e-commerce empire to the point that about 15 years in, they could transition from relying on razor-thin margin profits in e-commerce to selling the computing power that makes e-commerce possible. And, you know, it's masterstroke, but it's transformation for sure. I'm sure there were, and there were, you can read the headlines, uh, all along the way, shareholders, uh, critics, pundits, analysts would Second guessing. Well, why is Bezos and the crazy Amazonians investing in building data centers? This whole cloud thing. Their game is selling books online. They should stick to that. Uh, and, and it goes for all their other product lines. Why would they buy Whole Foods? They're not a physical shopping location. They're an online thing. Whole Foods isn't online. People don't want a grocery store shop online. And then a pandemic happens, and a lot of people want to do that, right? Um, Let's look but, at it from. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go no, no. Go ahead, man. This is good. Keep going. Alibaba is doing the same thing. Yeah. And if you want to look at it from, if you want to put it in the context of like a quote near peer competitor, no one, or I shouldn't say no one, that's an absolute. If I walk to any random person on the street and ask them if they knew what Alibaba was, yeah. they'd probably say, no, I, mm -hmm. I don't. Um, they are probably Amazon's greatest competitor on the global scale, right? And, and um, I would say that the American people are oblivious to um, how they are executing their business from the they're they're 
not only do they own India and and you know in the east, um, they also are working with cloud services as well, and they're directly competing with Amazon in, in that space. You know, Amazon just like the DoD is continuing to prepare itself to give it an edge yep. um, when you know people think there is not a threat. Yeah, that's very telling and, and very insightful because because you're right. Actually, um, I, I I've met people since since I've you know become an Amazon EWE, and, and I've heard some of them, and and they're actually not Amazon fans. Uh, in fact, they they prefer a competitor almost because Amazon's too too mainstream, um, or it's too expensive. They they find a reason, and, and you're right. It's not a foregone conclusion that Amazon's just it, and that the internet will just continue to be sort of led and pioneered and dominated by Americans at all. There's definitely a lot of a uh, international competition on that front, um, you know, to the point that there's going to be a variety of internets, a variety of cryptocurrencies, a variety of doge. Yeah. You get <laughs> readiness to the moon. Yeah. Right? Readiness to the moon. Yeah. I, I, and, and I think then, you know, I, I know that I'm sort of wandering here, but you know, bringing it back to the culture piece, all of that game changing disruptive innovation happens because i think companies like amazon hire really smart people and sort of say go do the best you can do and and they're not let's say they're not uh of the mindset that the corporation knows more than the individual um so they give them room to run if that makes sense there's a there's a healthy culture inside amazon that just about everyone can be an entrepreneur and start a brand new product line, business line, sort of out of nowhere. They, they teach their employees to think big. That's one of their leadership principles. That's some of the stuff that we can dive into because it's part of what we try to bring back into the Air Force, right? You're no stranger to even our culture playbook. But, but that's what Amazon does. Um, they, they hire in, in a way now, I don't know if it's always been this way, but they've always had exceedingly high standards. Uh, one of the famous stories is Jeff Bezos' first ad for an Amazon employee I think it says something to the effect, I'm looking for a software engineer skilled in these languages and can do three times the amount of work that a normal person can do. And that's the ad. And, you know, I, I don't even know how many people, rational people would apply for that. Like, wait, wait, a company I've never heard of wants me to do three times as much work as is normal. Um, you know, I think you only appeal to a certain kind of persona who would even answer that ad. And Amazon does an amazing job of that, right? Part of these internal narratives that I don't think a lot of customers know, but employees definitely get on their walls. They have, you know, the, this, the slogans of, um, you know, sort of work hard, have fun, make history. Um, you know, it's a, it's an, we're going to change the world and they have, and they continue to do in order. You can sort of look, what's the first one right? we're going to work hard three times as much as the normal person. Um, we're going to have fun while doing it. So sort of speak to your passions. And we will change the world as a result of what it is. We like that is the standard. That's not an aspirational thing. It's this is what you should expect to do when you're here. And I think that speaks to maybe some of the unhealthy elements of Amazon culture that I think get put out in headlines and are sort of poorly understood by, uh, let's say, by most. Uh, but uh, you, you can't ignore them. Uh, you know, in their in their operational footprint, there's there's the we work our Amazon works its employees too hard. So there's not enough benefits. They don't pay them enough. You know, it's sort of a they treat humans like robots and expect them to sort of be working nonstop around the clock. Uh, and I think Amazon's probably done as good a job at at any large corporation at being able to not just manage that in the press, but manage it on the ground. 
I sort of got to see that as a, uh, in one of the employee orientation programs that they send managers to is you go into the field and you work at one of the fulfillment centers. And, and I think these days, you know, if, if, and as those are real problems experience, they have a lot of corporate controls that, that sort of stamp that out and, and highly, you know, um, let's say discourage treating humans like robots, which is somewhat ironic because Amazon also has an army of hundreds of thousands of robots that do all kinds of work to help humans, not necessarily to sort of replace them. Um, bring it, bring it back. Like, bring me back, Matt. You know, going to the, uh, the whole... No, you, you, are, you are right on target. Yeah, am I? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm definitely wandering, but this is the point of podcasts, right? And, and this is the, the Jocko Go Juice that you got me on. Um, I'm wired, too. I got <laughs> uh, sour apple. I'm just getting after it. Yeah, this orange stuff is reminding me of like cover and move Saturday morning pop Warner football Gatorade, um, and I, I'm just waiting for the crash. Hopefully, it happens after we finish recording. Um, <laughs> but that work hard, have work hard, make history, have fun. It attracts a certain kind of person, and then once those people get onboarded into this company, uh, if changing the world is the expectation, they definitely resource to that, and they they ask each employee to think in terms of making the news. Not reading the news, but making the news. They, they use what's called a press release, frequently asked questions. You know, to, to green light a new idea at Amazon, each employee simply has to do uh, something that uh, is it's an easy way to communicate big ideas. And, and the Amazon method is, well, go write a press release. Time travel into the future. If, if you've got this great idea, like autonomous you know, airborne drones that can deliver packages up to 10 miles in 30 minutes or less, go write it in a press release and talk about who the primary customer is because we're customer obsessed. Talk about the problem that they have, which is not enough time to shop, waiting too long for, you know, for what they want. Um, in this case, there's also environmental concerns because these drones would be sort of electric and not gas powered. And, and talk about the value that customer gets. And that's how you pitch new ideas. And, and their culture is 100% wired that as, as associates or employees write these press releases, um, the the leadership levels, the management collects them, reads them, and says, "Hmm, you're onto something." I don't know that anybody else in this company is doing that. Uh, that's big. Have you thought about this? No. Okay, go address that. I'm putting you on with my boss, and and it's just like this really quick, you know, sort of uh, HOV lane. You know, it's like a like a fast pass at Disneyland. You got a really good press release, an idea that can change the world. That's customer obsessed. That's the Amazon brand. It's uh, it's like urban legend that the best ideas get their way up through the ranks and land you in Jeff Bezos' office to to talk about it. And and oftentimes, as crazy as some of these ideas are, it, it's notorious that they'll get to a Jeff Bezos level and he'll say, "You're not thinking big enough. How would we make? How would we go past where you're already at?" And you know, in in some sense, um. The, the team that I was on at Amazon, or at least the team that I was assigned to that I got to sort of see on a daily basis, is that autonomous drone in the air, you know, 30 minutes or less delivery. Um, so I got, to, I got to see what an, an entity like that uh, does and exists in, in an entity like Amazon, how they're given sort of that free space to run as fast as they can, but not so fast that it's reckless, not so slow that you sort of, you know, teeter towards irrelevancy. Um, I didn't necessarily get to to experience a lot of the leadership levels at that organization. Uh, I, I did have a chance to to talk to a, a vice president who helped stand up another sort of 
know press release type entity at Amazon, uh, Amazon Scout. It's a it's an autonomous six wheeled robot that drives on suburban sidewalks to deliver packages to customers. That was a sort of back of napkin idea that an engineer wrote up and said, "Boss, is anyone doing this?" And right up the chain, I think it was within you know days or weeks, this engineer went from a crazy idea about robots that drive themselves to talking with Jeff Bezos and sort of on the spot, you know. It, when Bezos is convinced that we're going to experiment with this, we're at least going to give it a try. It's okay. This is now your, your primary job. It's your other manager's job to replace you in the job you previously had. This is now your full-time job. Uh, come back in 90 days and money guy, give them enough to get started. People person, give them enough headcount so that they can get going. And, and let's see where this goes. It's that sort of just they're they're dedicated to experimentation and they put, I want to say they put their money where their mouth is. Um, and it's just the way they do business. So I think there's a lot of Amazonians running around looking into the world like, I've got a big idea that could solve that big problem. Or is anybody even thinking about that over there? Or like, what if we did this, this crazy idea? And they just, they just operate that way. It's not everybody. You know, like there's a lot of employees that are, they're not necessarily the ideators uh, or the original ideators, but they're the contributors that make those ideas happen. But if there was ever a big company that I think a lot of, you know, crazy wide-eyed engineers and, and, you know, ideators wanted to go to, I can't imagine there's a lot of other places that are better to do that than at an Amazon. And I think that's a key part of their culture. Um, it's tied to leadership principles. Well, I think, well, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, so, so tying it to leadership principles, the way you get a job at Amazon, it's not with your GPA. It's not with your test scores. It's not necessarily with your letters of recommendation. And it's not because your resume looks a certain way. Like, let's say all of those are sort of prerequisites that might get you an interview or get you into the game of being considered. Um, I, I think in Amazon, what they do so well is they hire for organizational fit and, and they're looking for, for talent, for employees that want to work hard, you know, have fun and make history as a result of the first two. And if those are sort of the aspirational taglines, they have a set of very specific behaviors that they call leadership principles, and they write them out. Um, they write them out and they scream for an employee's ability to exhibit those leadership principles and behaviors on a routine basis. Uh, they're looking for employees who have superpowers in those certain leadership principles, not in all of them, there's 14 of them. But, you know, but, but Matt, if I'm looking at you and, and I'm a recruiter or assessing you, uh, you know, how well do you, exhibit any of the 14 are some of them to the point that I would consider you a superhero. Like, like you have a bias for action. You can't stop. Um, can't stop. And, and your default is to act, to do something, not to sit and ponder and wonder, not to analyze, but to just get going. Let's say that's a superpower of yours. And let's say that counterbalances, uh, I don't know what the opposite of a superpower. I don't even know what that word would be, but uh, call it a weakness, call it an area for Ripping improvement. Eye. Sure. Yeah. What, yeah. Uh, Maybe, maybe that's where they would pair you with someone else. So if someone doesn't have a bias for action, and let's say acting is their kryptonite, maybe they're good at something else. Maybe they're good at analyzing, right? They're curious and they can dive really deep. Uh, I think the way that Amazon approaches it is we don't need people who are perfect in everything. We need people and a balance of, of people who can exhibit enough of these superpowers that get, get us to where we need to go. And because they hire for organizational fit, they spend probably uh, as little time as, as you would need to to get people 
into the behavior that you sort of want them, right? Like there's, there's great HR studies out there that talk about how it can take anywhere from six to nine months to onboard a new employee, get them down with the lingo, get them, you know, fit into the, the normal battle rhythm of, you know, the, the muscle motions and the, just, just the way the, the team works. I think Amazon has a much tighter window for how to get somebody up to speed. And it's because they knock out a lot of that in the selection process. Uh, your experience watching those new divisions pop up because yeah. of a of a press release. Um, they're obviously in in hyperspeed. I mean, they are moving quickly because they understand that this is um, the fastest moving competitive space in human history. Um, let's look at it from an Air Force lens. Tesseract exists because of a, a similar situation. You didn't write a one-page press release. You wrote a few dozen pages of, um, of a capstone um, with, uh, with Kelsey talking about an idea that can change the Air Force. Yeah. Um, you were given an audience. You were able to go straight to the top, in, in, essentially. Uh, and and we're given the green light by um, people like Dr. Roper um, to to go forth and conquer. Yeah. And um, that's similar to what you're describing uh, with Amazon, where the difference is is um, the barrier to entry is much higher in, in the Air Force, and it's not necessarily emphasized. Yeah. Because we don't look at that as a competitive advantage. Right. Um, we have, and you mentioned. Uh, well, not just hiring for organizational fit, but you but you mentioned like the high caliber of individuals that work at Amazon. In today's military, this is the smartest, most intelligent, sharpest um, group of soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and guardians, and guardians yeah, and coast guardsmen <laughs> that we that we've ever had, ever in, in the history of of a United States military or in any military period. Um, so. Uh, our airmen in the Air Force are it's our number one asset. Uh, and knowing that we have the most capable airmen we've ever had um, in history, um, you know, since 1947, how do we leverage our airmen? Yeah, yeah it, that, uh, you're right. And, you know, I apologize for even getting away from that too soon. So let's let's do a little bit of that backing up and going to sort of the origin of Tesseract. You know, so about four or five months into our EWE tours, uh, we have what's called mid-tour, and you arrange the 65 of us EWEs from all of our different companies, and you lock us in a, a conference room in Orlando, Florida, and say, tell each other what you've been seeing, and let's start let's start documenting it. Let's start the crosstalk, the sharing, the collaboration. Uh, I, I'd say traditionally, you know, the 65 or whatever the number of EWEs lock in that room, and they take comments, they take feedback. And they tighten their thesis of what it is they want to bring back to the Air Force. But it was very much so, an, you know, sort of the, I have to write my paper because that's what the syllabus says. I write a paper by myself. I think that the different angle that, uh, that Kelsey and I tried to take to it, um, and, and, you know, it's just a crazy idea, but we, were, we noticed similar observations in completely different contexts. Uh, you know, Amazon, like I said, software company that happens to do logistics. Delta Airlines is an airline that these days is leveraging some pretty advanced software to be a better airline. 
you know, they, they had similar transformation stories. You know, the popular Amazon one is, you know, in 25 years or so, you know, Amazon as a company is younger than my youngest brother, which really, you know, puts my age into context. But in that time span, um, goes from books online to autonomous drones flying in the air and pretty soon satellites beaming down, you know, broadband internet. Um, how does that transformation happen? On the Delta side, they went from, you know, kind of a premium value offering airline uh, coming out of a merger with a lot of issues and they virtually canceled maintenance cancellations, which is a tough feat to do in the airline business, uh, in, in any airline business. At the core of that, what we noticed was neither of these companies just bought software from an external partner. Neither of these companies hired a bunch of new people. Uh, and that was the solution. Neither of these companies, you know, just fired all their leaders and changed the leaders out. They, there, was, there wasn't sort of any one single thing. But one of the common threads that we noticed was the company at, at a corporate level and at a, sort of an employee level honed in on what is our target. I, I would say in Amazon's, it's growth. How do we grow and how do we leverage technology to grow? And in Delta's case, it was how do we leverage technology to provide a better passenger experience for, you know, for, for our passengers? Um, so we see similar things, utilizing things like theory of constraints, and and at the core of it, they empowered a set of employees with sort of a specific mandate to solve one problem. Um, not expecting the existing org structure to sort of solve itself. You know, at Delta, they sort of chartered out a new working group. And at Amazon, like we've been talking about, they greenlight new companies, new startups, separate from everyone else to just focus on that one thing that they want to do, that one new thing. And that's what we wanted to get. Uh, so we, we decided to combine our paper. We said, hey, what if we got our program manager to let us not write two separate papers, kind of saying the same thing? What if we got him to just let us write one paper where we say the same thing from two different angles? But maybe that'll provide some power here that it's not just at one company, probably at all of them, but let's highlight it from our own. It also helped that both her and I were picked to come to the air staff um, as, as our follow-on placements. Um, so we sort of looked at it as we're already going to end up probably collaborating and working on this together. Why don't we start now? And why don't we you know, sort of just not waste any more time? The, uh, the pitch that ended up happening was let's form an entirely new team of airmen that can get after a specific problem set and give them the sort of the freedom and the resources to go and do it. Uh, you know, at the time, there were headlines uh, about what the Rapid Sustainment Office was going to do for logistics. It was going to increase readiness, drive down costs, rapidly inject technology. You know, sort of a Dr. Roper, uh, a Dr. Roper play out of his playbook, right along the lines of all the other stuff like the Kessel Runs, the Pitch Days, so on and so forth. And we framed our EWI proposal on, well, I don't know what the Rapid Sustainment Office is going to specifically do, but we think it should look something like this. And you know, if logistics and maintenance is a big part of the Air Force sustainment enterprise of how we take uh, weapon systems and manage their life cycle so that we can fly them for decades and that they can be sort of war ready for decades. Uh, you probably want some logisticians and maintainers from the field on this team. And that was our proposal. Get a small team of logisticians and maintainers, connect them. This was like the kicker. Connect them with companies that have done this before, like the Deltas and the Amazons. And, um, and maybe throw in some, some university goodness, right? Like talent that you would not normally have access to, to, to solve some of these problems. The, uh, the, the proposal 
got enough attention at senior leader levels that here we are two years later with a team of logistics and maintenance professionals doing sort of enterprise process reengineering. Uh, you know, the, there's there's wrinkles that have taken us far enough a departure from the original proposal that let's say I think we're leaving lots of points on the field. But for what we actually have, I think we still have, we're postured to do a lot of amazing things, not in the least of which, you know, we're focusing on the Pathfinders we're on now, but we've engineered a mechanism to do that press release, right? We, we have opened a door to our functional community to say, if you're an airman like a Chip Litchfield or a Jamie Schultz out there that has an idea that can change the game, we want to be a partner with you. We want to collaborate with you. We want to elevate your idea. We want to resource it. We want to get it off the ground. Uh, so I, I'd say there's definitely goodness there. Um, you know, being in the business of launching startups, even if we can only launch one new startup idea a year, you know, as a Tesseract entity, I still think that's progress for our Air Force. And, and it gives us the ability to do things that I don't know were, would have been as easy before. Because that was definitely part of it. But you know, when Kelsey and I wrote that first business proposal, it wasn't obvious where we should send it to. Um, you know, the way I talked about Amazon culture, every manager is part of the system for elevating those good ideas. I don't think that's the case in the Air Force. I think there's a lot of institutional no's in the Air Force of, um, I can say no to a certain part. And if you give me a problem that narrowly sort of like fits in my, in my lane, I can say yes, maybe I'll say no. But so much, so many of our problems are complex in nature that they involve, you know, one, three, five, 17 different yeses all at the same time. And, uh, and I think in our case, we've done a, a decent enough job of carving out enough space that we can align an, enough of those yeses to at least get started. Um, and, and it gets you out of the institutional of, hey, I can't help you with that. That's a great idea. I can't help you with that. And that, that's at the core of some of that problem that we were trying to solve. At, at Delta, you, know, you mentioned their technology, well, their technological changes that, that they made. And you also uh, dabbled in the theory of constraints. New tech is useless unless you're able to alter the way that, that you think about the, the world around you. Yeah. And the theory of constraints provides that and, and truly changed um, at the core uh, of Delta's leadership team. Because if they were not able to look at the world around them differently, then their technology around them is essentially useless. Yeah. Uh, if they're able to leverage their new tech um, with, with a new way of thinking. And also keep in mind, Delta is technically, technically older than the Air Force. Yeah. I mean, they, they, I think they were founded in 1927, I yeah. want to say. I, I, could, I could be wrong. Um, and then, yes, the Signal Corps for the Air Force, you know, goes back, you know, further than that. Um, but, um, you know, they, they had a lot of institutional um, norms. Mm -hmm. They had uh, a bureaucracy, just like we have bureaucracy in a sense, as to... Um, People were conditioned to say, you know, no to things. And uh, now it's time to change the way that we look at, at the Air Force, change the way we look at the DOD. And um, I think Tesseract is proof that more people are saying yes to what they typically wouldn't have said before. Um, and uh, if we can continue that trend um, to get people, you know, to look at things um, differently. I think we can become uh, a more uh, a lethal air force, a more lethal military. And I, I, I say lethal because, hey, uh, everything that we are doing, um, contributing to readiness, contributing to the lethality of, um, of the future fight, 
is is critical. And and if we, uh, it, but if we, uh, I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole here. If we don't change the way we think, and we don't, um, and we don't approach problems differently, uh, then we're going to find ourselves um, in a stalemate. Yeah, and I think that's where the, you know, the the humility of of amazingly of amazingly innovative and amazing amazingly uh let's say effective strategic leaders like general george like general hurry like a dr roper is there's a humility and we don't have all the answers and we can learn from others now that's sort of at the core of our paper the reason we push for a strategic partnership with entities like a delta airlines a georgia tech research institute or an amazon is they have scars of their own and have solved problems that we're in the business of solving now um, you know, a, a working group, uh, uh, a knowledge sharing board, um, a research agreement can probably save us years, potentially worth of, you know, wandering around in the dark so that, that our leaders put us in a position to send, you know, airmen and, you know, sort of knock on the door and say, hey, can we come learn from you? And, and to find ourselves in time and space where those entities are willing partners of, yeah, come on in, let's share. We are in the business of supporting the Defense Department. We are in the business of sort of you know, doing our part for, for national defense, that it's great that we do this. The EWE programs, I think one of the, the greatest sort of unsung, um, unsung sources of value in our DOD for sure. And the army does it, the Navy does it. It's called TWI for them, but in the Air Force, it's EWE. The, uh, the piece that you're sort of talking about of the stuff that we can learn from them, <laughs> it seems so different to us sometimes that, that in itself is just a barrier to even starting. Uh, like we're actually, I mean, we're running through the, a lot of this right now. Um, you know, to to fly or maintain a fleet of aircraft like Delta, I think there's natural human resistance to change of, well, we're not Delta. We can't do it like them. We shouldn't do it like them. We do it the way we do it because it makes sense for us. And being able to, you know, sort of inject and have that, that humility of, well, maybe I'm open to learning. What, what, if I can see the obvious things that make us different, what are some of those common things that make us the same? And and maybe in that space, there's a there's an opportunity to learn and apply a lesson learned that we haven't yet learned and applied. But it's really tough to overcome that first part. And that's where I feel like we are in a really good time of our Air Force, where our senior most leaders are saying things like change or lose. And not just change or lose gradually, but we need to accelerate the pace that we change or we will lose, right? That that is the foregone conclusion, uh, and, and I think that I think it's timely. I think we have to take advantage of it. Who knows how much longer it'll last? Who knows how how long we'll be able to sort of afford that that line of thinking? But uh, it, it's still extremely difficult to do a lot of that because of that that sort of institutional no. Um, you know, the the chief of staff of the Air Force now, and the the chief master sergeant of the Air Force, the secretaries of the Air Force, we, we talk about doing things differently. I think there's a lot of airmen through the whole sort of set of ranks who want to do things differently, but it's just really difficult to line all of it up. Sometimes even just knowing who needs to be in the room to say yes or no is 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 part of the difficult part. And uh, you know, it's sort of like <laughs> pushing a, a wet noodle across the floor. It's just really difficult to do. But if you can make it somebody's full-time job like yours or mine, which is what's happening with, with our team, it's probably easier to do it than if innovation is a side hustle. So I'd say that that's some of the real goodness that's come about, right? That Kessel Run is an official 
um, software factory for the Air Force, and it's now 1,300 people strong, and their job is to deliver software that airmen love every day, that go fight and win wars is amazing. Um, you know, that, that we have, um, we have an, an AI accelerator of airmen uh, in jeans and T-shirt, I think, many of the days, but they're paired at the hip with MIT engineers, data scientists, studying how artificial intelligence can be operationalized into the DoD. Uh, you know, they're part of a joint artificial intelligence center. I, I hope that unit doesn't go away anytime soon due to things like budget cuts. But we're in an exciting time. We're probably in the first inning of that exciting time for this generation. And I think our goal is to keep sort of you know, swinging and, and getting on base as much as possible, to use a sports metaphor, so that we can score some runs. But, but I don't know that, that we're all the way there yet. We're getting closer. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, good. And, I, and I think uh, from, I want to tie it back to, I just did a lip smack. Did you? Yeah, I, I did. did. I heard that. I did a little lip smack. Um, uh, I, I want to go back to the action orders. Okay. General Brown has published his action orders. And it's not new. Everyone's heard A, B, C, and D. When you were at Amazon, did Jeff Bezos have anything similar to those action orders that empowered Amazonians to get after it? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think this is a contrast in, uh, in our organizations and, and probably the age of the organizations. You know, the, the Air Force is, what, 70-some years old and, like you mentioned previously, has decades of heritage before that, right? before it became its own service. Um, you know, Amazon is... 25 years old or so, 25, 26 years old. The, uh, the DNA that Amazon was born with was transformation is part of our expectation. So th there's probably the closest thing that you'll see to something like an action order. It comes at the end of the year when Jeff Bezos writes his annual letter to shareholders. And in that, he's, he's been famously, notoriously sort of stubborn in that each year, He'll describe the trends, the challenges, the wins, the losses that, that the whole team sort of experienced from the last year. He'll do you know, some focus on the future of what, what still remains a priority, the direction that we want to go if we're going to pivot or persevere. And he famously and notoriously posts his first shareholders letter back from 1997 when they, when they went public. And the, the common themes in every letter since then, I mean, they, they teach MBA classes, I'm, I'm sure now, just on reading Jeff Bezos' shareholder letters. But he posts the first one because going back 20-some years, he talked about how they were going to be long-term oriented, how they were going to be oriented on customer value, not shareholder value. And that's a, that's a key case study. You know, you're, you're a business guy. You've had experience in corporate America. There are a lot of corporate cultures out there that tend to emphasize a balance sheet over a customer experience that tend to, uh, let's say, prioritize um, a quarterly objective over an employee uh, training program. And, and those short-term targets can be met with long-term consequences. I think that's one of the, the great things that, that a Bezos had done at Amazon and a lot of other great transformative leaders do is they set their company up to be long-term in focus and to sort of stay like direct aim on the right target that if you focus on that right target, everything else sort of falls into line. So that there's not necessarily a need for action orders at an Amazon because 
transformation, focusing on empowerment, um, battling bureaucracy, uh, being creative about what the future of the company force design should look like. That's all just baked into the, their normal, let's say their normal DNA. So I think action orders are 100% necessary in an Air Force where every two, three, four years when you get a new SECAF, a new CSAF, coming in with a theme of we're going to do this, um, it's 100% important. Like, like I think we've said at, at other, other conversations we've had, our leaders are doing a great job of setting the table and the need for change as opposed to the nice to have of change or the maybe we should change. Um, that, that's definitely something that, that contrasts in, in what I've seen. You wouldn't need a Bezos to get on stage and say, guys, we need to sort of innovate our way out of a mess. In some senses, they're creating their own messes to clean up that put them in a better spot to begin with. He's got a great quote out there. He calls them um, you know, the, the need of making big bets early and often, of experimenting, of taking gambles uh, when they're smaller uh, is 100% part of how they've been so successful and how they've grown. You know, they, they talk about how you can do 100 experiments, and as long as you have one that pay for the other 99, the other 99 failures don't really matter. Uh, and, and I think you can see that with things like the cloud, with things like the Prime program, two-day shipping was supposed to bankrupt them within a couple years. In fact, it became one of their biggest boons, you know, becoming a movie studio, buying a Whole Foods, and, you know, investing in their own fleet. Why, why would we do that? UPS and FedEx already do that. But, but each time they make one of these bets, and as it turns out, they're, they're winning on a lot of their big bets. The way Bezos talks about it, it prevents them from needing to make a bet the company bet, which is, uh, oh, we are so desperate. We need to sort of, you know, Hail Mary pass, call it whatever you want. It, it's now at the point where we really need this to work, and it's sort of out of our control. And, and that's, that's where he, he has primed the company to be um, inventive and... Um, willing to experiment from very early on. And I think the Air Force has a unique challenge in being part of a DOD that has to subordinate to political considerations uh, that let's just say they're different than Amazon shareholders, different than the Amazon board of directors, different than Amazon, you know, being a product of a Jeff Bezos, who's the, the chairperson until later this year will be the, you know, the lead CEO. I, th I think a lot of our culture has to change back and forth. We're in growth. We're in, um, uh, reduction mode when it comes to people we're in growth we're in reduction mode when it comes to our technology and a lot of that is just i mean it's just the federal budget um you know it's which party is sort of in political power so that there's this really like huge pendulum that we're constantly trying to stabilize from whereas amazon it's 100 percent been about growth mode from the start i think at some point in time amazon will get to a place where it's too big it's too unwieldy and they're probably going to get disrupted by others. And you're already seeing it. Um, that, that's part of their expectation. Bezos talks about that. His role as CEO is not to eliminate the chance that they'll be disrupted. He's like, we will be disrupted. Our, my goal as CEO is to delay that as long as possible. And that's why we continue to experiment on behalf of our customers. It, it's not experiment for experimentation's sake. It's experiment to see what our customers like the most. Got this great quote of... Um, of customers in any of the industries being divinely discontent and that you know take for example their retail business you can lower prices increase selection and increase shipping speed uh, and and in those three categories they'll always want it more they'll always want a lower price a wider selection and faster shipping speed and he sort of looks at it as if, if i can prime my employees my corporate structure to consistently constantly be inventing 
to to improve those, we'll have a better shot at meeting that that discontent. And maybe we grow market share. Maybe we increase revenues. Maybe we increase a profit margin. So that I don't know. Does that make sense? That needing action orders isn't necessarily there because it's just part of their DNA. And you look at our DNA, core values, excellence in all we do. You know, service before self and integrity first. Great aspirational values, but those don't necessarily inform at a precise level individual behavior or organizational behavior. And I think that's the difference. Amazon's found a way to take leadership principles and put them at the lowest level possible as just expected behaviors of airmen. You should be thinking big, inventing, experimenting, diving deep, teaching yourself. Um, all with the intent to support the customer. All with the intent to support the customer. So, um, you know, their action order C for them, right? Customer. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, they, they look at it from the standpoint of customer first, right? Uh, let's look at a Southwest Airlines just for for a second. Yeah. They're very much employee first, and that that's what their culture has been about. Um, both highly successful companies, and um, always looked at from a case study perspective. Um, it, you you talked about the Air Force and, and their fluctuating um needs. Um, at the end of the day, there's a mission requirement, and uh, we have to subordinate our decision making to the decision to the mission requirements, right? And um, how do we, uh, you know, approach readiness um, from in, in accomplishing those those mission requirements that always come first? Uh, where I see um, the action orders coming into play is uh, it's a more Amazon focused perspective of, you know, we need to focus on our airmen. We need to focus on our employees. How do we capitalize on on that asset, our number one asset, you know, uh, being our people? Uh, I think. General Brown and his direction when it comes to the new um, doctrine that's been published, uh, Air Force uh, Doctrine Publication 1, uh, the revised Air Force Doctrine, um, takes decision-making, you know, asks, and uh, uh, gives perspective of why pushing decision-making to the lowest level is essential to um, uh, the future fight. Uh, we are going to be working in and fighting in. Um, well, we're currently working in the fastest paced um, global uh, power competition that we've ever seen. Combat is going to be sustained at such a faster rate. Decision making is going to have to happen so much faster that um, you know that that makes the emphasis on on commander's intent essential. Now. I think tying into what the you know the the foundation that the CSAF has made with when it comes to his action orders and it comes to the new doctrine that's published is um, is great. I think it's a I think it's a great roadmap for commanders and airmen uh, at all levels um, and to to empower them to make to make decisions. Now I think Tesseract takes that to the next level um, with with our culture playbook you know we we have our intent our our intent is to get after uh the new sustainment strategy uh to increase aircraft readiness and um when when we operationalize that and not only just operationalize it but we humanize it as well uh and, and take it to the you know to the frontline airmen to the airman level um and, and i think um i think the culture playbook that we have uh 
enables and empowers our team to uh, not only make the decisions that are impacting aircraft readiness, but gives us the roadmap as to how we should act, behave, and the rationalization that we should make as as we make our daily decisions. Yeah, the uh, you know the culture playbook tie-in, and you know it's probably even worth us listing some of you know what we consider our leadership principles. Um, well, let's list them. Yeah, sure. So you know, uh, focus on airmen. I think is the first one, and and that's where we orient ourselves to. Similar to the way that Amazon makes decisions based off of what maximizes value or satisfies a need of its paying customers, or you know, you mentioned, in a sense, Southwest strategy of making it employee friendly and those employees then provide a superior customer service or a no frills value experience for uh, for passengers we've definitely oriented our innovation accelerator to be airman focused and airman focused innovation i think is a great balancing force to normal existing uh existing parts of the way air force makes decisions you know balancing a budget's a really tough thing to do and and you know to the to the heroes in the air force corporate structure who have to make really tough calls on where to invest our our sort of our precious resources you know, that sometimes those decisions have to come at the cost of what an airman on the front line wants or needs the most um it's just it's just sort of plainly spoken matter of fact that's just going to have to happen sometimes but i think we're a balancing force in that in the innovations we pursue we want to make sure that we place very high on that you know value totem pole would this innovation this new process this new technology be something that an airman wants the airman that has to do the job is this something they want and need and our our hypothesis our assumption is if it can meet that mark you know the the, the downrange decision of can we afford it or what to what level can we afford that value should be second and not first and, and i think that's important you know some of our others are um, having a bias for action you know this is a do we call another meeting or do we just go and do something and then maybe talk about it later after we've done something thinking big you know, there's there's a lot of great little ideas you know sort of tinkering around the edges I, I think you know when the boss says accelerate change or lose i don't think he's saying let's tinker around the edges i think he's saying let's make tough decisions uh let, let's make the difficult ones let's make the ones that you know, there's a great quote out there of if you're in the transformation game you have to get very comfortable feeling uncomfortable it's not going to feel right it's going to feel like you're you know you're maybe cutting off an arm uh it's not a pleasant experience but you know i think there's a great movie out there that sometimes you got to cut off your arm if you want to survive was it 127 hours do you watch that movie Greg? oh no <laughs> i forgot the movie but yeah i think it's 127 hours i remember being a, a boy scout and we joke about you know you know, your arm getting caught in a, yeah. in a boulder or whatever, yep. and you have your little Swiss. It's a little. Uh, yeah, I know graphic. you don't. I know you don't watch movies, so there might be a book on it. But yeah, you know, I I don't like trafficking and metaphors, but I think that's a pretty good one. Mm -hmm. Of uh, you know, making tough decisions is going to come. If you're thinking big, those decisions aren't just going to be tough at a small scale. They're going to be tough at a big scale. I think the Air Force tries to do this, which let's get rid of a weapon system that we hold dear. Uh, we know it works. But maybe it's the only way we can get to the one we lead in the next war. Uh, you know, I, I don't need to name any specific MDSs, and, and you're probably thinking of one, two, or three right now. Um, earning trust, I think, is a big one uh, and a leadership principle that we value that helps on an interpersonal level. Uh, there's a natural human resistance to change. If, if you are the process owner and an innovator comes knocking on your door saying, 
I think we can do it better or let me help you do it better. Sometimes that message doesn't always get received a certain way. You know, I think that we value in our organization first earning trust and, and, and trying to maybe develop a relationship and saying, hey, th this is not a, not a personal thing. I, there's no vendetta against you. It's we might see something you don't let us help you see that. And we want to see what you see, too, because there's probably very good reasons why you don't do it the way that we see it. But but there may be ways around that that are that are worth it. Um, I, I don't want to list all of them because I think you have a, a pod episode out there. The uh, the other one that I'll mention here, though, is uh, disagree and commit again on an interpersonal level. Uh, not always going to agree which way to go. You're going to come across forks in the road all the time. And, you know, naturally, one will want to go left and the other will want to go right. The uh, the principle that, that we sort of have in our book is lifted from Amazon, and I, I got to see it there in a handful of very heated conversations that, because it's part of their culture, the heat was focused on the issue and not on the people. Um, you know, shouting matches at, at stand, like standing at a conference table in a shouting match of you're not seeing what I'm seeing. Let's look at the whiteboard again. Very different than the passive aggressive or actively aggressive ad hominem of I'm, you know, sort of coming at you. Um, my kid would love that siren in the background right now. <laughs> right now, he'd be running to the door it's saying, a fire truck. Fire truck, fire truck. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, so these are, I think, tools in a toolbox. Uh, our leadership principles, we try to focus in on these as our default behaviors because they're the things that you're going to need to be in the innovation game, to get anything new, big, um, unproven, proven. We need to have sort of these things rallied on as a team. And, and I think the value of the playbook is you, you assemble any team from two people to 20, 20 people to 200. Everyday conversations, meetings, uh, initiatives. It's sort of an ad hoc. We all bring our best and worst to the table, to every conversation, to every interaction, to every negotiation. The playbook experiment that I think we're now, what, seven months in on, um, that Amazon's, you know, decades into is you can shorten the time frame that various personalities, formative experiences, resumes, um, cultures, belief systems get to the same or closer to the same point. And then you really see things speed up fast. When, when, when you and I can look to our playbook and see that bias for action means, man, it's really tough right now. What do we do next? When you and I can agree that, well, we should do something as opposed to, well, let's just have another meeting and talk about it. There, there's an element there where the default puts us into motion instead of puts us into observation. You know, when, when our default is earn trust, that's the, hey, you know, to myself, you really want to make a point right now. You really want to feel good and it might put that other person down. How do you try and communicate it in a way that, that you're not going to belittle the person because you want to earn their trust? To the disagree and commit, you know, that leadership principle, how do you operationalize that? It's a, man, I think I'm right. The other person thinks they're right. We're not convincing each other. We have to take, we have to get somewhere because we're biased for action. Um, let me try one more time. I'm going to voice my dissent. And if I can't get through, maybe I'm going to trust that my teammates see something I don't. And let's move forward anyways. Let me disagree one last time. Make sure they understand where I'm coming from. And if that doesn't convince them, I'm going to subordinate myself and my desire, let's try it out the teammate's way. And, and not in like a half, you know, begrudgingly way of, man, I hope you fail, but it's like, nope, okay, I'm gonna get on board, we're gonna do it your way. And if we fail in an hour, a day, a week, or a year, however long we give it, 
maybe we'll try my way again. But these are all sort of the way that we can use our leadership principles. And, and I think that similar to the, you know, what you hear about the Netflix culture, Amazon's culture is lionized in the business world right now. Uh, you know, writing it down does such a, a wondrous effect on, on sort of rallying people quicker than they would normally do it. You know, like some of the most effective people in any organization, the common attribute that gives them that ability to be effective is they've been around for years. Like you, you, know, you see in the Pentagon, you see it at any unit. Yep, that person's been around for 10, 20, 30 years. They know how this machine runs. You know, whether they're a, they're a secretary, an exec, uh, a foreman, um, a scheduler, someone who runs the mock in the Pentagon, they're the div chief or the deputy div chief. You know, the, there's the person who's been in the Pentagon literally for 40 years. They know how the whole machine runs. The, the playbook, I think, gives newcomers, um, stragglers, the, 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 the people that haven't been around forever, the chance to maybe use some of those preferred behaviors very quickly, which is a book plug, right? So this one right here, Assignment Pentagon. Uh, I was lucky enough to have a retired Air Force colonel direct me to this two months before I showed up to the Pentagon. I'll admit up front, I didn't read it cover to cover. I read enough of the first 75 pages that I felt like I had learned Pentagon culture without having ever set foot uh, you know, in the Pentagon as an action officer yet. And I was prepared to do things uh, that I would probably would have taken me days, weeks, months to, to figure out. So you know, I think that's what we're really trying to do with this playbook concept. You write it down. And I would encourage um, any airman out there from your section, your shift, your flight, your squadron, group, wing, office. If, if you don't have a culture playbook that lists your shared beliefs or tenets and behaviors of the default sort of actions we want to take together, try writing it down. Like get, grab two, three, four of you, lock yourselves in a room over lunch, uh, play the brainstorming game. What do we value the most? Like really, not, not what we hope we value, but what do we actually value? Uh, how do we actually behave? You could just make a list, uh, an accounting list of the way it is. And then you could probably take a closer look and maybe say, well, why, why do we value that belief so much? And why do we divert or, sorry, revert to that behavior so much? Maybe we can get rid of it and replace it with something more positive. Uh, I, I think that any leader, any airman that does that experiment of building a culture playbook will very quickly highlight the good beliefs, the, the valuable behaviors, and highlight the negative ones, ones that don't do so well. And that gives you a posture to deliberately manage the way you do things. And I think it'll be easier for the next new person to show up. You give them a book. Hey, this is what we believe. This is how we behave. Uh, that's what I got when I showed up to Amazon. Before I ever showed up on, on the campus, they mailed me in an Amazon box a little pamphlet that said, here are leadership principles. And here's the clothes you wear. Here's the buildings we have. But here's how we behave. Here's the words we use. And here's how, what we sort of expect from you. It's also important to note that like, this culture playbook that we have doesn't circumvent the core values. Yes. It, it only puts the core values into context uh, and, and adds a little bit more definition as to um, what we can do as airmen and, and, and teammates um, to accomplish our mission while still following through with the core values, but also supplementing that with, um, uh, with the culture playbook. Right? Another piece that you mentioned that's critical is you know, collaborating as a team. Um, uh, there is precedent set from 
a quote culture playbook you know in the um in the military you know one being doctrine two being command philosophies um not necessarily uh th those two aren't great examples of like a team coming together and, and putting down on paper um what direction they want their organization to go um you as a supervisor as a as a flight chief as a as a flight commander a squadron commander uh can um collaborate with your people and, and your and your leaders um to um to establish um what you think your culture playbook should consist of uh we have a you know we have an example it's not necessarily the we're not saying it's the right answer we're not saying everything is perfect because we you know we are i think we're perfectly imperfect yeah um because of the system that we have in place and uh we're continuing to experiment and invent um which is also another leadership principle That's right. um to uh you know to experiment and invent um with this process and uh i think the hypothesis of um you know having a culture playbook being a a mechanism to guide decision making and to and to build a stronger bond in a team and to orient ourselves towards tesseract's mission being to empower airmen connecting with resources and accelerate change all with the intent to to generate readiness um, I would say it's been a success so far. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a member of, of Tesseract. I'm saying that because I have that culture playbook, that PDF open every single day uh, next to the little uh, grid of, of Zoom faces, <laughs> right? And, um, and I'm uh, personally, uh, you know, speaking for, for Matt Miranda, I, I base my decision making um, off of the North Star, which is the the Tesseract culture playbook. Yeah, and nothing is stopping you as as an airman to to come together, and it doesn't have to be you know pretty and made on Canva or anything like that. It, it can just be a simple Word document. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's almost like you know the, the the Agile manifesto for the the software community for the last twenty years. It emerged out of looking at the previous twenty years of the things that didn't work well. So they decided to write down the expected norms and behaviors of their community. And it spurred on things like, you know, the mobile software revolution, the AI ML revolution that's going on. And, and it hinges on things like, well, you know, deliver workable code. Don't collect requirements forever. You know, the, the, tying it back to sort of a, an everyday Air Force airman sense, like you said, a culture playbook that's a collaboration between the lead and the leaders, I think is a huge, <laughs> let's say it's a huge benefit to a hierarchical military organization like the Air Force where it's assumed that leaders are, let's say, the best equipped to make every decision. Uh, and, and we sort of, our culture is, goes back and forth in this because we, pre, we praise decentralized execution, but in a lot of ways we encourage micromanagement. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's a reality. How do you get out of it? You know, the, the classic culture clash that you see is every summer, just about you know, half the units in the Air Force change out commanders. Um, you know, and I'm speaking a lot. Let's talk just logistics and maintenance, right? AMXSs, MXSs, LRSs, SCOSs, APSs, A, there's all of them. Anything that ends in an S, you know, I think there's something like 300 plus squadrons just in logistics and maintenance and 150 of them, the, the flag gets passed and the whole unit is sort of waiting on bated breath of, okay, what commander did we just inherit? What commander did big air force just say? is now in charge of my organization and what commanders call assumption of command or change of command speech am I going to sort of have to listen to to figure out if this boss is people first or mission first or people always and mission always and now we sort of have to re-wicker everyone else's personality to our new leader 
I think the value of this culture playbook is it's tied to the organization and it's a collective voice of what we all value. And it's not this thing of every 24 months, we just have to change it because one person sort of switched in the organization. And, and I think there's a lot of value there because in a lot of, in a lot of ways we have squadron commanders, group commanders, wing commanders taking command of units they've never been in before. And those units are dozens, hundreds, thousands of people who have you know spent collective thousands of years in these organizations. Sometimes they don't always clash well and, and the results speak for themselves, right? Like not every Air Force organization out there is high performing. Um, I think the ones that are find a way to be really tight on their culture or at least rally very quickly, you know, as sort of the, the environments change. So, so that's a big piece. And, and like, I think what you said it best is at any level, this works. You know, you, you don't have to be, a, you don't have to be a, a commander, you be a, a shift supervisor, be a dorm leader, be anything at any level where you just say, Hey, we interact on a daily basis. What do we value? How are we going to behave? Uh, it works out pretty well um in in the long run the the other sort of thing that i want to be able to make sure we spit out before time goes away and it was a great experiment in culture change that that i'd love to see more of in the air force because i think it speaks to the new doctrine that we have of sort of decentralized control like once commander's intent comes out why we're doing what we're doing what outcome we want you know giving those on the front the ability to to get there without being necessarily on a short leash um you know to sort of proceed until you're apprehended or pulled back is the story of uh i think it's a navy sub captain uh, l david marquet i think is his name and he's got a great story out there a lot of people have watched the viral ted talk but turned the ship around you know in in the nuclear sub world you know one of the most highly controlled existential type consequence organizations out there you know just watch crimson tide or any other famous you know hunt for red october what happens when a nuclear sub doesn't operate correctly can be pretty devastating, um, not just to the 200 sort of souls on board, but to you know anyone that gets hit with what could come out of there. But uh, he, he had this great, great situation where he acknowledged his limitations as the captain of the sub, where he said something like, I trained my whole career for the wrong submarine and everyone on my crew is trained for compliance. Captain built for the wrong ship and a crew built to follow orders. Recipe for disaster. So he sort of experimented in flipping it and instead of the typical, you know, I'm not in the Navy, but instead of the typical, you know, 10 degree down bubble and the, you know, whoever the next person has to repeat it to the next person who has to repeat it to the sailor who's got to actually, you know, push whatever they push forward to make the sub go down. He's like, how about we just reverse it? And it came as a result of an action where I think that he ordered incorrectly a command that didn't exist and everyone just sort of repeated it anyways. And then I had to come back. Uh, and, and he's like, wait, so you knew that command didn't exist. Why did you say it? They said, well, that's just what we do. And, and it hit him. He's like, man, this is bad. So he flipped it. And he's like, from now on, you guys know what we're doing. Each day, I'll make sure you all know where we should be going, commander's intent, what should we be doing, and sort of where we need to get to. But you guys start telling me what you intend to do, and I will, by exception, rein you in. So you tell me that you want to submerge the boat. You tell me that you want to launch the torpedo. You tell me that you want to, you know, X, Y, Z. And, and it became a culture of, I, I, Captain, I will do this because you intend it to, Captain, I intend to do this. Captain acknowledges, you know, sort of move out and move forward. I feel like it's great contrast to a lot of what we do in Air Force culture where we hold meeting after prep meeting, after prep meeting, after prep meeting, after prep meeting, where one, two, three dozens, hundreds of people sometimes can prepare a decision for a leader to make 
that in a lot of ways, I think everyone up that chain could, could and maybe should make that decision themselves, but it's assumed that it has to be made at a higher level. You know, I, I often wonder what would squadrons, groups, wings look like if at the lowest level, commanders, uh, you know, flight leads, supervisors were making decisions sort of on their own. And, and, and trust me, I, I'm not sort of blind to the consequences of what this could look like because an Air Force flying wing is a complex machine. And you can't have, you know, one part of the ramp doing one thing and another part doing the other. But, uh, you know, that, that decentralized control experiment, I, I don't know if it happens enough. Um, I have heard of some great stories of wing commanders who say things when they're presented with a decision like, uh, well, what would you do? And whatever that person who just got to brief it says, go ahead, move out. Or they'll say something, well, have you thought of this? You know, I think there's a probably just too, an over-reliance on the the need for that high-level commander to decide um, without necessarily presenting a COA. Captain Marquet? Yeah. Uh, I think it was the USS New Mexico. I think so, yeah. Or Santa Fe. Santa Fe. Santa Fe. Uh, the Sa- USS Do you Santa know the Fe. way? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's talking about culture that has been ingrained since the 1700s. Yeah. And even before that. And if you don't have the context of like understanding like how far back, how many hundreds of years that tradition goes, and him being able to alter his perspective, um, and then to alter, you know, and help um, transform the crew's perspective, it's powerful. And it goes, yeah. and it's uh, oh, it, that that is deep rooted change. And, yeah. and if we're claiming that we only go back to 1947, you know, I think we got a little bit. I, I think there's <laughs> that's right, yeah. You know, um, and knowing that. And knowing the potential, and then and seeing how the the culture is constructed currently, imagine, yep. imagine if we cultivated and empowered, uh, you know, our airmen, our number one resource that don't typically always have that voice, yep. um, and, or the resources, um, to to accelerate that change. There's so much potential. Yeah, it's it's almost the the indirect benefits too that are are, are extremely powerful. Don't even necessarily get to be seen unless you can get that first part done, but you know that I learned as a young officer growing up that the most effective, let's say, field grade officers, you know, majors and lieutenant colonels, were the ones who, when they were engaging with their next colonel, weren't just trying to solve that next colonel's problem or, or get that mission done, but they were doing it in a way of, sir, ma'am, we should proceed in this direction, not just because you want to, but you really want to do this because it's going to help your boss get to where they're going to. And then, you know, that's sort of like two levels up above that. And that's going to meet this boss, right? This NAF commander or MAGCOM commander's intent of this. It, it, it's sort of like uh, it's problem solving at multiple levels above sort of where you're at. And that's tough to do sometimes when you don't have all the context. But uh, what it prepares, I think, that lower echelon to do is to think at that level. You know, to, to think at a, as a squadron commander, why wouldn't, what would my wing commander want to do here and why? And how can I help sort of make that happen? Uh, you know, at an enlisted level, it's like, hey, I, you know, I'm a shop leader. What would my section chief or my pro super or my, you know, my, my squadron superintendent sort of need of me, either in an operational or an admin decision? How does it meet that problem too? And, and it prepares that echelon to rise as opposed to the opposite. When you get micromanagement, it's just like, well, okay, I'm not even going to try anymore. You're going to tell me how to do my job. So just tell me how to do my job here. And that does not necessarily prepare you well for when you take that seat. I've heard some, some really adept senior leaders talk about one of the most important things they can do is sort of prepare their replacement or the next generation, right? And they speak about it at an individual or population level, but preparing 
those who come after you to sort of do not what you did, but what they're going to need to do is extremely important. And, and in a world where we don't do that, you don't, you don't get the benefit of sort of practicing before it's your turn to sit in the hot seat. Um, so, you know, it, it, I think it definitely speaks back to the, the David Marquet thing of captain. I intend to do this and I'm not just intending to do it from my vantage point, though that is taken into consideration. I'm thinking of where you got to go to, and I'm thinking of what was told to you. It, it's definitely a great sort of force multiplier in, in developing leaders. Um, and I think we can get there uh, in a lot, lot more ways. And, you know, some of the way that, you know, you study that future high-end fight, we're going to need to get there. Because when you're out alone and unafraid and disconnected, that intent that you got is uh, probably going to be the only thing you can do, right? When, when the phone doesn't work, when you can't hop on a Zoom or a Teams call to clarify, uh, it's going to be really tough to execute if you're not already sort of thinking one, two, three levels up above you. And I think our operators do this extremely well, right? Like I imagine that our air crew who are out at the forward edge um, are prepared to execute per their ROE, do whatever their assigned mission is, and decide split second, uh, should I do this or not? And not just for me, but for the sort of the big picture. And I think that's probably one of the things that Air Force has to sort of deal with differently than the other services. But I think it's definitely applicable to what we do in logistics and maintenance. So, you know, we talked about cult- you know, having a culture playbook. Um, you know, I think step, step one, hey, sit down with your team and talk through it. Talk about it. Um, hey, see, you know, I would say see if it applies to you, but I would say, hey, it, it applies to you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and don't hesitate to reach out to Tesseract. You know, you know, slide in our DM, send us an email, That's comment right. on, our, on our post. Uh, hey, you know, reach out. And, yeah. uh, uh, and let's talk through it. We'd, we'd be more than happy to, to walk through our culture playbook and what works for us and, and, and what can potentially work for you and, um, and continue to connect you to those resources. Yeah, that's great, Matt. Let's just name that now, Project Playbook. Uh, and and let's, let's do that. You know, different than maybe different, but in the same direction as stuff we're doing with foundations and psychological safety or how we're trying to sort of standardize using theory of constraints as a methodology for focus and flow and sortie generation and logistics, you know, teaching airmen new ways to think or different ways to think and how they can apply it. That, that playbook, culture playbook is something that I think we can do. I don't think we do that regularly right now, but we could probably easily do that and, uh, and, and make an impact. Uh, so look, look at that. You just became the core, uh, the primary OKR owner of Project Playbook, and I'll be your alternate. I'll be your partner and your contributor. Let's do that. Sounds good, man. Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseractaf.com.